Welcome to the Moms of Tweens and Teens podcast. If some days you doubt yourself and you don't know what you're doing, if you've ugly cried alone in your bedroom because you felt like you're failing, well, I just want you to know you're not alone and you have come to the right place. Raising tweens and teens in today's world is not easy. And I'm on a mission to equip you to love well and to raise emotionally healthy, happy tweens and teens that thrive. I believe that moms are heroes and we have the power to transform our family and to impact future generations. If you are looking for answers, encouragement, and to become more of the mom and the woman that you want to be, welcome. I'm Cheryl Gould, and I am so glad that you're here. Hi, friend, and welcome to the show today. I am so glad that you're here and listening in, and I am so excited to share this conversation with you. And emotions can be so difficult to navigate with our tweens and teens. How do we support them when they are a roller coaster of emotions? Well, my special guest is Dr. Lisa Damore. And Dr. Damore is a clinical psychologist and author of three New York Times bestsellers, Untangled, Under Pressure, and her latest book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. She is also the co-host of the Ask Lisa podcast and is recognized as a thought leader by the American Psychological Association. She earned degrees from both Yale and the University of Michigan, and she has more than 30 years of experience working with teens and families. Dr. Lisa DeMore's latest book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, is a life-changing book, which we talk about today. Some of the things you're going to learn is what does emotional health mean for our teens, typical adolescent development of the brain and how this plays a role in their emotions, how we help them with costly coping and what that means and what we need to be on the lookout for, and how do we know when our kids are in distress and need intervention. And also we talk about some of the developmental things that are going on that cause teens to be on this emotional roller coaster and what we can do to support them. So I know you are going to love what Dr. Lisa Damore has to share with us today. So let's jump in. Well, Lisa, welcome to the Moms of Tweens and Teens podcast. I am so honored and excited to have you on the show and talk about your new book. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I have to hold it up for those that are watching the video. The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. And, you know, it's funny. I have, look at Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's all highlighted, marked up. Mm. And I just love it so much 
Because it really speaks to the heart of what our tweens and teens need right now and what they need, what they need from us. And I would just love to start off and have you share with our listeners what led you to write the book. Sure. So there were really two things. You know, one, of course, was the pandemic. Now, I've cared for teenagers for nearly 30 years, and, you know, I've never seen suffering really at that scope or scale. I mean, just it was so bad for teenagers and their families. Um, and then the other was something that had been in process before the pandemic, but actually I think made the pandemic even worse than it had to be, which was a fair bit of misunderstanding about what actually mental health is. And so often in the popular conversation about mental health, being mentally healthy is equated with feeling good or calm or relaxed or at ease. And those are all lovely things, but that's not actually how we as psychologists understand mental health. And I think if it actually sets a bar that is unattainable in terms of an ongoing experience and then frustrating. So probably the main aim of this book, because it's a book that, you know, mentions the pandemic, but hopefully goes far beyond the pandemic. The main aim was to try to bring across a definition of mental health that actually matches how we understand it professionally, which is mentally healthy people have feelings that fit the circumstances they're in, even if those feelings are unpleasant or unwanted. Mm -hmm. And then they manage them effectively. They manage them in ways that bring relief and do no harm. And so um, my goal was to really try to help reset the discourse a little bit about what mental health is and how we support it in ourselves and our kids. Wow. I mean, I just think when you wrote that in your book and distinguished between those two, I think that's, it's so helpful to just be able to see like, oh gosh, you know, having emotions and feelings is normal. And very uncomfortable, but normal. And I think as moms, we need to remember remember that, especially when our kids are feeling, our adolescents especially, are feeling so many different emotions and coming out of the pandemic. I mean, we're a couple of years out now, but I see, I work with moms and they're still really struggling with yeah. their kids and their kids are dealing with so many different emotions. And... I like in the book how you talk about and kind of normalize the behavior that can be expected when you're an adolescent. And just that can make a huge difference in how we treat emotions. Can you explain developmentally some of the things that are going on that cause them to be on this emotional roller coaster? Absolutely. And so, you know, the way the book is constructed, chapter one addresses a bunch of myths about emotion, like that they are harmful, which they almost never are, you know, things like that. Chapter two is about gender, which is really like so interesting to write in to unpack. And then chapter three, I could have basically called it like what to expect when you're expecting a teenager, but it's really just like, here's the typical trajectory of adolescent emotionality. And one way I'll put it, Cheryl, like, I think the pandemic was so hard that there's this wish that we could get back on a smooth road with our kids. And the nice thing I would say is I practiced so long before the pandemic that I have an in my bones understanding that typical adolescent development is a bumpy, bumpy road. And then we were in a ditch for a couple of years and now we are back on the bumpy road, right? And that that is really what we're looking at. 
So for me, chapter three is like, let's meet all these bumps, right? Let's get to know them. No surprises. This is happening. There's no getting around it. And so a lot of it is driven by neurology. A lot of it is driven by the fact that the adolescent brain is remodeling. It's becoming faster and more powerful. And um, in what is probably not a perfect design, the emotions get upgraded before the perspective maintaining systems get upgraded. So these poor teenagers are walking around with gawky brains that when they are upset, it's a very powerful experience. And their ability to maintain perspective is comparatively weak. That evens out over time, but they feel things really intensely and they don't always have the controls that they wish they did or that we wish they did over their emotions. That is happening. They also need to become separate and individual which invariably involves pushing away from us or feeling critical of us. And it doesn't feel good. But one thing I think about all the time, I think, what a feat it is to try to become an independent, ready-to-move-out human being while living under the roof with your folks, being fed by them, driven by them, having... Like, that is an extraordinary thing. And so... Of course, they accomplish psychological independence as a way to try to move into total independence, but it doesn't feel good for the parent, especially. <laughs> so that is happening. And then they start their love lives sometimes, and then they have a lot of feelings about school, and then they're trying to sort out what they're good at. I mean, it is a really wonderful and also really challenging time in development. And so I think the more we can just see what's coming and not take it personally, better everything goes. Yes. I I just cracked up when you said when your teen can't stand when you chew food. <laughs> That's the title oh of the gosh, section. Yes. Your teen can't stand how you chew. No, it's true. It's one it's little true. section in like chapter, what, three? Yeah. And I thought, yes, I remember sitting at the dinner table and my son was like, do you have to chew so loud? It was like, you couldn't do anything. You, you know? can't do anything right. You yeah. can't do anything right. And so I really try to lay out in that section, why? Like what is happening developmentally that makes us basically completely unbearable? And there's good reason. It makes sense, but it's not fun for the parent. But I think the more that we can see it as an important developmental step for kids, the better it goes. Yeah. And you know, what's so helpful about that is it helps us not to take it so personally. Yeah. And I think what you, the age that you said is that usually 13, 14, isn't that around the time that you are so not cool? I would say that's the height of it, right? Because what I talk about in that section about why your teen can't stand how you chew is separation, individuation, like this Mm -hmm. wish to develop an independent person, you know, kind of, I call it brand. Branding language actually describes it pretty well. And that really is right around 13, I would say a little bit more for girls, maybe 14 for boys. And as kids move into that phase, there's a separation side, which is they're trying to develop an independent brand. And so that anything that we do that is like the version of themselves they see themselves becoming, that is aggravating. So maybe you have long liked Beyonce, and then suddenly your kid decides she likes Beyonce. Now there's going to be a big problem, right? And you liking Beyonce is going to be a crisis. But also, (laughs) since they're working to become individuated, we're still real caught up with each other. So anything we do that is not like how they see themselves becoming, such as like the sweater you want to wear to eighth grade orientation that they think is kind of dorky, like that is also going to be incredibly aggravating. So what we're into for a little while with our teenagers 
is a phase where everything we do that is like how they see themselves becoming is annoying. Everything that we do that is unlike how they see themselves becoming is annoying. Everything we do is annoying. <laughs> and it's, it's just not fun for anybody. Um, luckily, they usually outgrow it pretty fast when they start to like figure out what their brand is, right? And their brands, what's neat is often they start high school right around this time. And so then they like are on a team or they have a activity or they do something that becomes more and more theirs, feels more and more personal, more skills are developed. And then they less, they're much less bothered by our kind of, you know, dowdy or uncool brands, not their problem anymore. Yeah. I love how you put the words that you use in the book, like the personal brand that yeah. just like, it, it's just such a way it clicks, you know? And I'm like, yes, that's why both of my daughters started dressing differently. Mm-hmm. They neither and they were, you know, and then they are moving towards their peers. And so they were dressing, maybe they were trying out one group and they're wearing all black and then they kind of, you know, changed groups and they're trying to conform and fit in and belong. And yet, They're also arguing with us and kind of going against our values. And the more that we often push them to try to agree with us, like you're saying, they push back and resist all the more and it ends up in these power struggles. And and what I find and working in my own life as a parent and also working with other moms is it can be so upsetting Mm -hmm. to us. Mm -hmm. And when they're going against and how you deal with that. If all of a sudden you're saying something's blue and they're saying it's green, but you know, it's blue, but it's green, you know, and, and just how, how do you deal with that? And yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, so I have two teenagers myself. I have a 19 year old and a 12 year old and they're girls. And one thing that I find to be a real advantage in all of this is my clinical practice. Cause I, I know what a crisis looks like and I know what to really worry about. And so I can, I think, hopefully take a more relaxed attitude towards things that I'm like, well, that's not going to ever amount to anything potentially very problematic. And one of the ways I have thought about what's worth getting into it with my kids about is I use this, the measure, like, will this matter when they're 30? (laughs) if If you use that filter... It takes down the number of things that you feel are worth getting into it with your kid about. Will this be worth it when they're 30? No. And usually they out because my kids are older now. My youngest is actually 23. So I, why did I worry about that? That she didn't brush her hair exactly before she went to school. Exactly. That That will not matter when she's 30. That will not matter when she's 30. Right. Or, you know, short of incredibly revolting choices, like the way they keep their rooms, right? Oh, you know, I mean, it's hard. It's hard. Um, Will it matter when they're 30? Eh, Probably not. Yeah. 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 My kids were all slobs went through that phase and they're (laughs) they're neat now. I'm like, oh my gosh, it took until you got your own place. Yeah. 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 So it, 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 I, I think a lot about like, we mostly want to try to have a nice time with our kids. Because yeah. fun and and that's fun for us and fun for them. And it also, honestly, I think it also helps them to um, be better behaved because if, if they're having a good time with us, they're less inclined to make a choice that's going to ruin that. Whereas yeah. if we're having a hard time all the time, like why bother being well-behaved? Um, and I think a lot of how 
I've tried to get there as a mom is just to pick and choose what's worth throwing down about. Yeah. Yeah. I want to quote you from your book because it's really just, I was like, wow. The past decade, there has been a dramatic shift in how we talk and think about feelings in general, and in particular, the intense emotions that characterize adolescence. To put it bluntly, somewhere along the way, we became afraid of being unhappy. And you go into a little bit of explanation about why this is. Can you briefly speak to this? Because I found it fascinating. Sure, sure. So, you know, this is the intro to the book, and I try to lay out like a three-part argument for what happened here. So one thing that happened, and I don't think any one explanation is the whole explanation, and I don't even think the three explanations I offer probably tell the whole story, but it's, you know, my attempt to try to wrap my hands around it. So one thing that happened is the rise of the wellness industry. So wellness is great. Commercialized wellness can, I think, sometimes sell something that cannot be really achieved, which is this idea that there's some emotional zen out there. And if you just do all the right things, you can get there and stay there. And that's not an option. And I think as much as wellness practices can help us maintain a sense of equilibrium, I want people to be really cautious about anyone who's suggesting that if they just are mindful enough or do enough yoga or have the right apps and oils, they won't have to feel bad. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work like that. never has. Mm -hmm. So there's that. There's also, um, and this, I think I'd I'd want people who were interested in this argument to really look at how I lay it out because it was very carefully done in the book. Psychiatric medications are now very, very, very widely prescribed. This is often essential and wonderful and life-saving and life-giving in many ways. And I, as a clinician, have many, many times in my practice said to someone, I think you would really be helped by medication. But when we look at the statistics, I mean, it has shot right up, antidepressants and the like. And they're actually um, you know, prescribed very quickly, often to adults, often um, in the absence of a more thorough or careful assessment or consideration of where the sadness or frustration or difficulty or, you know, is coming from. And so this is a, if it, it's at best a partial explanation, but I think that the prevalence of psychiatric medications that are supposed to help with mood may have lent to the idea that we don't have to feel bad. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And then in terms of being frightened or anxious about distress, the last piece of my argument is like, actually, kids are doing quite a bit worse. And we have very good data showing that that's been true since about 2010. We've been seeing rising rates of distress in teenagers. And this is well done studies, you know, not just self-report. We're talking about kids who are evaluated, depression, anxiety, suicidality, those are all rising. And so adults have good reason to be more anxious when their kids become distressed. It's a scary time and it's been a scary time. And then the headlines around us are often very harrowing and very concerning. And so I think all of those things together and probably other things I'm not thinking of have gotten us to a place where it's scary when your kid's upset. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you talk in the book about the difference, like what mental health really means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And can you share that? Sure. Because I I found it very helpful. So in contrast to, I think, this definition that circulates that, you know, you're mentally healthy, you're a kid's mentally healthy if you feel good. 
what we really understand as psychologists and have always have, like there's nothing controversial at all in what I'm bringing across in this book, is that mental health is about having feelings that actually fit the situation you're in and then managing them well. You know, and Cheryl, I talked about the pandemic in part being inspiration. Part of what was happening is that people were saying, oh my gosh, kids are so anxious. I'm like, well, of course they're so anxious, right? Like their schools are shut down and there's a lethal virus circulating. Like what emotion but anxiety fits the moment, right? So that's what I mean, that of course they were anxious. And then now as things have returned largely to a more, you know, what we remember from before, you know, if, kid, if your best friend moves away, we expect a kid to be upset. If you have a huge test the next day and you haven't studied, like we expect the kid to be anxious. So these are all negative emotions. Nobody wants to have them. They are all actually evidence of mental health. And that's the place where kind of, I find sort of staggeringly, I find myself at the inverse of the discourse right now. Like right now, so many headlines are rolling up psychological distress with mental health concern as though they are one and the same. Mm. When if we think about how things actually work, and all of us know this intuitively, much of the time, your kid's psychological distress is evidence of their mental health, right? We want to see anxiety if they have not done what they're supposed to be doing. We want them to feel hurt and angry if somebody's mean to them. It's not that we want them to feel pain. It's that we want them to have a reaction that they will then move them in a useful direction. So that's how we want to think about it. And so then really where the rubber hits the road is not about the presence or absence of distress. Like psychologists are like, well, yeah, of course there's going to be distress. Like that's life. What we're really interested in is how does it get handled? So the kid whose best friend is moving away, you know, we expect what we want to see, right? That they want to talk about how sad that they are. They, are. they want to maybe put on their sad playlist and listen to it and cry alongside it to get some relief. And maybe then they want to cuddle the dog a while. And then maybe they want to go watch a TV show and not think about it for a while. This is great. This is exactly what we hope to see. We only worry when that kid is like, you know what? I'm so upset. I'm going to go smoke a ton of weed. Or I am so upset. I'm going to ruin the mood of the house for a week. Or I'm so upset. I'm going to take it out of myself in some way, right? That's when we worry. That is the only quarter where we worry Everything else is typical and healthy development. Wow. Yeah. It's just the way that you put it, it makes just so much sense. And yet it can be so uncomfortable for us when we see our kids in distress. It's the worst. Yeah. And then the thing that I, I've noticed historically I wanted to do or I see other moms that are in my community and my membership is we want to jump in and we want to fix it. And we want to reassure them right out of the box, you know, to that, you know, you're going to be okay, or don't feel that way. And we end up dismissing their feelings. And we mean well, because we want them to feel better. But your book is all about how actually, being with them in those feelings is what actually is going to help to bring healing and help them learn how to process their emotions. And, and then you give some language to it. So can you speak to that? Sure. So just to rest for a minute on what you said about what it feels like as a parent when your kid's upset. I don't know that there's a more universal and actually loving and healthy instinct as a parent than to hate to see your kid in pain and to want to make it stop. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, we all have that as our first reaction. And I'd actually be more 
worried about a parent who did not have that as their first reaction. Like, yeah. like when yeah. our kids are in pain, we hate it. And so I have so much empathy for the parent who's like, how do I shut this down? Right. Or how do I keep this from happening again? The only issue being it doesn't help our kids the way we think, the way we want it to. Right. And it's exactly what you said, which is usually that pain is productive. It is informational. They can grow from it. They can draw strength going forward from it. And I think you said the most essential thing, they actually need to learn how to do this. They need to learn how to manage their own emotional distress on their own and with with the help of people who love them. Mm -hmm. So what I lay out in the last two chapters of the book are two, I call them, um, you know, like playbooks for helping kids regulate emotion. And these are how psychologists think about emotion regulation. So it's not like we can prevent distress. It's not like we can magic it away, but we do help kids regulate it. And for psychologist regulation, we think about it in these two categories. One is sometimes kids regulate by expressing their feelings, and sometimes kids regulate by bringing their feelings back under control or taming them. For psychologists, these are on equal footing. We see these as equally valuable emotion uh, strategies. Right now in the culture, we're really, really focused on the first, helping kids express emotion. And it has value, but it's not always the end-all be-all. And so the last two chapters of the book are really just a whole bunch of different versions of supporting kids as they express feelings, either verbally or non-verbally, not all kids use language, and a whole bunch of strategies for helping kids tame emotion. If either they don't want to talk or if talking's making it worse, which it does sometimes, and really um, helping hopefully readers feel like they've got a repertoire they can turn to and that they can help their teenager turn to when distress shows up, which it will, that can over time mean that that young person can function more and more independently and less and less afraid of distress. That's really what we want. Yeah. One of the things that you that you say in the book is just also like it makes sense, like validating their pain. It makes sense that you feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. That can be such a grounding force. It can. And I would say teenagers more than anyone else, they need to hear that. And the reason, and you, you've already mentioned this, like their feelings are so intense, right? This is also a neurological phenomenon. Like they feel stuff potently. And one thing that is true is there's a part of them that is weirded out by how powerful their emotions are. They're both having the powerful emotion, and often there's a part of them that's like, this is weird. I did not hit the ceiling like this at 11, right? This is different from what I remember. And there's a part of them, I think, that's often worried about themselves and worried about what it means that they are reacting so intensely. So when a kid comes home and is, you know, in full intense emotion about something, to say, you know what, what you're describing makes sense. I totally get it. It's actually a twofer. <laughs> you know, so one is you're empathizing, which is 99% of the time all they want from us. Like they do not want advice or suggestions or questions. Like just want empathy. Yeah. And two, you're basically saying to them, you're okay. You're not ha- there's nothing wrong with you that you're having this reaction because there is often a is there something wrong with me question lurking around in there somewhere. So that simple gesture of saying, "Oh man, you are totally having the right reaction." It gets a lot of work done. Yeah. 
I just think how helpful that would have been for me mm-hmm. when I was going through that. Cause I thought what's wrong with me yeah. just to have somebody say, you know, that makes sense. Yeah. Of course yeah. you're upset. Of course yeah. you're upset. Yeah. Yeah. No, so good. You have a, um, I guess you would call it the saying, or maybe it's, I, I had not heard of it before, costly coping. Oh, yeah. I don't know that I've heard it before. I've started using it though. I think I may have come up with it. Did you make that up? I just, I might have. I think I might have. And I just wanted to, uh, you know, have you speak to familiar scenarios that I'm seeing. So, uh, my, my son, okay, not my son, but just we're, this is just kind of a combination of different things, you know, went through the pandemic. And before the pandemic, he was very social. And so he had lots of friends. And then here he is isolated. Mm-hmm. What happened was he got bullied during that time mm-hmm. on social media by some of his really close friends that he thought were friends. And he was really hurt and it was really difficult for him. And his grades started dropping. Mm-hmm. And now he is isolating there, you know, he he's out of it, but now he's not really socializing mm-hmm. like he was before and kind of get, you know, putting his toe back, but not really. And then he's around the house all the time, isolating, playing just hours upon yeah. hours upon hours of video games. And so the mom is feeling really anxious watching this go on. She knows that he's a social kid, but he's not getting out. And he's not talking about it. Yeah. And she's trying to gauge like, is he okay? Is he not okay? And how do I help him when he won't talk to me? Yeah. Yeah. Man, that is such a vivid and I think common picture what Mm -hmm. you're describing. Yeah. So let's break it down. There's a few things here going on. The first is that avoidance feeds anxiety. Mm -hmm. And this when we talk about costly coping, avoidance is probably one of the most common things we see. And so this poor guy is anxious about what's going to happen between him and his peers because he was mistreated. And his solution is to actually just steer clear of peer relationships. And in the short term, this is helping him feel better, right? If he thinks about going to a party or you know engaging or calling people, and then he starts to get anxious about how it might be received if he decides just to not do it, he'll feel better in the short term. That will make his anxiety go away. The problem with the avoidance though, is that first of all, it does feel good. So the next time he feels anxious, he's going to be inclined to use it again because it works. Mm -hmm. The second is whatever he imagines about how he will be mistreated goes completely unchallenged by reality because he never checks it. Mm -hmm. So it sort of stays sealed in amber, what happened. Mm -hmm. And so what needs to happen is he does need to be helped to sort of wade back in. The more he avoids, the worse it'll be. The longer this goes on, the harder. And then, of course, with kids socially, then you're out of the loop socially. I mean, it it, it exacerbates quickly. Yeah. So the solution is to help him wade back in, even if it's like one friend and something safe and just confronting the realities, which hopefully are less problematic than what he's daydreaming them to be. Yeah. So there's that. Now, the video gaming... There's a couple of things at work here. One is this kid's got tons of time. Right? I mean, like the, 
like if we can just like take away all psychological explanations and just put it down to a logistical one, like, well, he doesn't have anything else to do because he's not hanging out with his friends, right? So he's just filling time and has a inordinate amount of time to fill. So hopefully some of that could be addressed by getting him to at least baby step his way back into a social life. There's also the reality though, that distraction is part of how we can tame an emotion, right? Suppress an emotion. A little bit's okay, actually. And and I think that's something I came to appreciate much more in the writing of this book. Like we all use distraction all the time to quiet something that's uncomfortable. That um, you know, if I'm writing and I'm frustrated with what I'm writing, I might like do a little internet shopping, just not think about it for a little <laughs> bit, right? And then come back and then I write again. Like that's using distraction to uh-huh. address my frustration with the writing. And And so what I've come to appreciate about distraction and its place in our overall emotional economies, distraction's not usually the issue. Dosing is the issue, Mm. right? You want enough distraction that it helps you get back on track and feel better and doesn't cause new trouble. You don't want so much distraction that it creates its own problem, right? So this, this poor guy, you know, if he's spending hours and hours and hours, first of all, he's sedentary. Second of all, he is never addressing these feelings. Third of all, he's using distraction to the exclusion of all other coping, like talking about how he feels or finding other ways to comfort himself that are himself that is adaptive, you know? So for him, if he's using constant video games, I'm like, okay, the, dis- the dis- dosing is now an issue. It's causing its own new troubles. But what I would say is by way of talking to teenagers, my conversations with teenagers about distraction are going much better when it's not that I'm anti-video game, it's that I'm pro-effective dosing. And, you know, that that, to recognize that there are kids who come home, play video games for an hour, blow off the steam from the day, and then can get down to their work. That's a pretty good outcome, right? So when we're not wholesale against how they distract, I think it's easier to have productive conversations about how distracting is working for them and maybe also coming with some, um, with some, with a price tag. Yeah, that's that empathy piece and that understanding, mm-hmm. um, understanding that that's, you know, that that's something that they enjoy doing that is a distraction. Mm-hmm. You're not going against it like it's bad, yeah. which, you know, is going to cause a fight right out of the box or defensiveness. Yep. Just those shut down, uh, but more like coming alongside of them. So what might, what might be something she could say? So I think let's treat the avoidance issue and the distraction issue separately. So I think on the avoidance issue, it would be important to say, look, I totally get it. Like you had a bad experience and it makes sense that you would avoid, right? Like, and I see why you're doing it. And then I actually think helping teenagers understand how avoidance does work in the short term, but actually exacerbates the problem long-term. I think unpacking that science for them actually is very effective and compelling. And then it can lay the groundwork for saying, you got to get out there a little bit. Like what feels safe enough? Like what could you start with? So you don't have to show up at the biggest party, but like, is there a kid you could call that you feel it would go well? So waiting in. On the video game piece, I think the way to start the conversation is to say, look, you're not going to be surprised. I'm a little worried about how much time you're spending on your video games, right? I mean, I think you got to play your cards face up with teenagers. Like you can't, you know, like they can see right through us. But then I think to say, but I've been thinking about it. And I think that I don't see it as all bad. I think some of it's that you're bored. 
But I also think some of it is that maybe it, when you're feeling lousy, it occupies your mind and then you don't have to feel bad. And I think some of that's okay. I'm worried that this is more than just some, and I'm worried that it may be causing new troubles, that it doesn't give you enough variety in how you're spending your time, doesn't give you any support around the stuff you're feeling bad about by talking about it. So I've been thinking about that, right? Just don't corner them. Mm-hmm. Play your cards face up. Lay out your concerns. Teenagers are so great. You know, if we are totally transparent and invite them into a conversation about what we're observing, they usually respond really positively to that. Yeah. Gosh, just your voice is so soothing (laughs) when you say that. It's so good. You know, just thinking about it, we have to get deal with our own reactivity, don't we? Our own worry that when we get escalated and we're feeling anxious and we're feeling powerless and like, oh my, you know, gosh, she's playing video games. No, this makes sense. And just the way that you modeled that, Mm. it's, it's, I'm for you. I care about you. I'm not trying to rip that controller out Mm. of your hands I get it. Makes total sense. I'm spending, you know, four hours in front of Netflix every night, yeah. you know, trying yeah. to numb out too. Yeah. And, and you know, and we gotta, you know, work on just getting back in there a little bit. Yeah. Bring some variety to how you're coping and get you back with a couple kids, right? I mean, that's that's yeah. the goal. But I think the nature of my training, and I, 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 without even being conscious of it, I'm falling back on this all the time. People make sense. Kids do the stuff they do for reasons. And if we don't start from that position, we're going nowhere. It's exactly what you said. Well, they'll be defensive. They'll feel like we don't get it because we're not even trying to get it. Where I would say that so much of my work is trying to stand in the teenager's shoes and think, all right, this kid's a a rational actor. They're doing stuff that doesn't work well or maybe costly, but I'm just going to assume they're a rational actor and try to figure out why they're doing what they're doing before rolling up on them with my ideas about what they should be doing instead. Yeah. That's that costly coping where you think Mm -hmm. kids are, you know, smoking pot or they're doing some drinking, or even Mm -hmm. I hear from a lot of moms or kids are cutting our eating disorders, uh, you know, behaviors like that. They're getting something. It's coping. It's coping. Yeah. And it's helpful to remember that. Yeah, it's costly. It's costing them something, but it is serving a purpose. Yep. And we yep. think about ourselves too, you know, what we might go to, you know, oh, you know, not that having a glass of wine is bad, but I'm going to go to that to. If you do it all the time to manage every upset feeling, it'll turn yep. into a problem. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, how do you dialogue with your kid when you see them going to these costly, let's say they're smoking pot or. Yeah. Um, what would you say to them? So I think you got us most of the way there, which is you basically say like, you know, say they're smoking a lot of marijuana or say they are cutting themselves. Say, look, you're a smart kid. You're doing this because it's helping you feel better. You wouldn't do it any other reason, right? Like it's working for you at some level. And we got to figure out, you got to figure out what purpose it's serving. and then. We have to figure out a way for you to serve that purpose in a way where you're not getting hurt, either neurologically from 
you know, using lots of marijuana or harming yourself. Like the goal here is not that you never feel bad. We can't promise that, but that when you do feel bad, you have ways to feel better where you don't get hurt. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's just like, I see you, you know, (laughs) and I want to support you to get what you want, you know, with that (laughs) some relief, but in a healthy way. (laughs) Yeah. So, so good. Lisa, how do we know when our kids are in such distress that we need intervention? This is the key question, right? Because Typical adolescent development is so spicy and so rich that it's not always easy to know when you should be worried. So what we're looking for, we're looking for a couple of things. One is we're looking for a kid whose mood goes to a concerning place and stays there. So it's no surprise if a teenager is like high and low and high and low, you know, 14 times before 9 a.m. Like that, that's a teenager. We do not expect to see kids who are upset, sad paralyzed by anxiety, angry, like day over day, even three days in a row of that, like uninterrupted is very unusual for teenagers. Like they should move, their mood should be much more all over the place. So we watch for that, for a mood that just gets stuck somewhere. That's not a good place. And then we watch for costly coping, right? So maybe they're managing their mood, but they're doing it by getting high or they're managing their mood and they're doing it by self-harming, right? Or they're managing their mood by ruining everybody else's mood, right? I mean, that there's lots of ways they could go about it that would amount to coping, but would come, you know, would add up over time to a problem. Yeah. It seems like um, getting a kid to therapy. And I think this Mm -hmm. ties in with what you were saying about kids already feeling like something's wrong with them. They're resistant to going to therapy. Mm -hmm. A lot of kids right now, now there's a lot of kids going and it's hard to find a therapist, but What if your kid is not very open to it? It's really true, right? I mean, if they're already worried that there's something wrong with them, which I think a lot of teenagers just by baseline are, to then say like, you know what? I think you need to talk to a therapist, right? For most kids are like, it's like their worst nightmare to hear that. So when I need to make that suggestion to a teenager, I will usually say something like, you know, for what you are up against, you deserve so much more support than you have. And I actually feel like you should have a pro, not just somebody who's doing this amateur hour. Like you should have a pro to help you through this. This is really hard. And that phrasing it in that way, which is entirely accurate, um, changes the dynamic around it. Wow. That's where everybody that's listening right now gets on and buys your book. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, Pause the podcast. I'm getting my notebook and I'm writing that down. Yeah. Cause it could be like, okay, we need to see a therapist. And then they're like, no, forget no, I'm going to go in my room, slam the door. I'm not coming out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Such a different approach. And it is because they're up against something big, yeah. right? And that they deserve more support to get through it than they have and more support than the parent can offer. Right. Which is a very hard place to get to yeah. as a parent. I feel like I can't give my kid what they need, but you can reframe it as like, you deserve more support than I can offer. You deserve more support than you've got. Like, let's make this happen. Yeah. You talk also about giving kids space because it can take them a while to process information. Yeah. So you don't need to get them to say yes right away. No, especially if this is some space to think on that. Yeah. If you're springing on them, 
like let them think. So I think a lot of times in raising delicate subjects, it's helpful to say to a kid, I want to run something by you. You don't have to let me know what you think right away. Like chew on this a little bit, but here's what I was thinking. And, you know, they may have an immediate answer, but you don't want to corner a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. And leave it open and then they can think about it. Yeah. So, so good. So how to find a good therapist. They're having trouble with that as well. Yeah. You know, my favorite recommendation is to ask your pediatrician. That pediatricians have a very good feel for the local talent and they also know your kid. And so they can often do a very good job of making recommendations that are going to be a good fit. So that's usually what I would say by way of a first stop. Okay. Yeah. They're really, really helpful. Well, tell our listeners where to find you. And I have a question to ask you because I already was telling everybody, I led a workshop and I was already telling them to buy your book. Thank you. (laughs) And then one of the moms went on and I was saying, we should do a book, you know, like a book study around this book and um, her book. And um, they, one mom came back and said, oh, and even the Kindle version, does it have a book discussion in it? Are there... Yeah, my website does. So if you go to my website, and for all of my books, if you go to the book page, there are free downloadable discussion guides for both parents and educators on all three books. That is awesome to know because this is such a good book to go okay. have do a book study on. And so we were talking about it. So I think you know it's just very helpful, very validating for moms too, for parents. Thank you. Um, yeah. Thank you. So. Um, so tell them where to find you. So my website is drlisademore.com. And that's got, it's basically a hub for everything I've got and a lot of resources. And I've organized the resources into categories to try to make it easier for people to find what they're looking for. Um, so there's six categories and it's like mental health, stress and coping, family relationships, risky behavior. And there's, you know, all these things that I think we're looking for when we're thinking about kids. Um and then when you click on the category, what will come up? I have a podcast called Ask Lisa, The Psychology of Parenting. And we actually just did an episode on cutting. And we just did an episode actually a while ago about like if a kid refuses therapy. So there's, you know, half hour deep dives into these topics mm-hmm. and many more. Um, and so my podcast will come up. Also, the work I've done for the New York Times will come up, um, TV work I've done. So I've really tried to make it so that people can get what they're looking for. And then I actually put a lot of energy into trying to put good content out on social media. So I put a lot out on, I have an Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter feed that I use to put out, hopefully small and easily digested support for families. Yeah. I love your Instagram feed too. Oh, thank you. Um, Your website. Yeah. You just have such good little snippets to chew chew on about what's helpful or what you can say. And uh, yeah, that's, that's great. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. It's been super helpful and just have really enjoyed talking to you. So same, same. You. I really appreciate this conversation. Well, that's it for today. And thank you so much, friend, for joining me. And I'm just so grateful for you. And I'm so grateful that you're a part of this community and that you come here and you listen to the podcast. It just means the world to me. And if you would do me a favor, if you would leave a review, I would so appreciate it. My mission is always to get the word out and always to be able to serve and provide 
wonderful content to help anyone who is involved in the life of a tween or teen. So I so appreciate you doing that and spreading the love. And I am so grateful that you are here. So have a great week and I will see you back here next time.